18 verses. Hear God's word. In the eleventh year of the third month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, Whom are like you in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and very high. Its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow, the deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place, and sent out its channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field. Its boughs bows became many, and its branches long, because of the many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the fields gave birth. And all great nations lived under its shade, so it was beautiful in its greatness, the length of its branches, its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypresses could not compare with its boughs. <clears throat> the plane trees could not match its branches, nor tree, no tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitude of its branches. All the trees of Eden, which were in the garden of God, were jealous of it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in its stature and it set its top among the clouds, and its heart is haughty in its loftiness, therefore I will give it into the hand of a despot of the nations. He will thoroughly deal with it according to its wickedness. I have driven it away. Alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down and left it on the mountains and in the valleys. Its branches have fallen. The boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land. The peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. On its ruin, all the birds of the heavens will dwell and all the beasts of the field will be on its fallen branches so that the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature, nor set their top among the clouds, nor their well-watered mighty ones stand erect in their height. They have been all given over to death to the earth beneath among the sons of men with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, on the day when it went down to Sheol, I caused lamentation. I closed the deep over it and held back its rivers. Its many waters have stopped up, and I made Lebanon mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted away on account of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I made it go down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all, all the well-watered trees of Eden, the choicest and the best of Lebanon, were comforted in the earth beneath. They also went down with it to Sheol to those who were slain by the sword and those who were who were its strength, lived under its shade among the nations. To which among the trees of Eden are you thus equal in glory and greatness? Yet you will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the earth beneath. You will lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. So is Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Again, Father, we are your children. We are exceedingly thankful and that you have saved us from the wrath to come, your wrath, Almighty God, that you poured out your wrath on your dear Son in our place. We were the people with proud hearts. We were the people that thought we were many gods, our own lords. And rather than what we see, you visit upon the Assyrians and the Egyptians. You poured it out on your Son in our place. Father, even as we consider judgment passages, may we look at them through the lenses of the mercy that we find in Christ. I pray this in the Redeemer's name. Amen.
Lebanon was under the control of, of Assyria. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So when I mention Assyria, that's, that's why. Um, so what we are looking at, as our brother said rightly, is the downfall of Egypt. I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's, bare, it's worth pointing out. Chapters 29, 30, 31, and 32 deal with God's denunciation of Egypt. We have one more chapter to go, and then I think God is going to turn his, his eyes back towards Jerusalem. Um, yeah, right, that's right, when we pick up in 33 and 34, certainly. And so this is uh, another judgment upon Egypt. Egypt is that major tyrant, um, hater of God, um, lover of false gods and idols and the hater of God's people, enslaver of God's people. And God here denounces them for their sin. What chapter 31 represents is something unique. What we find is that God is using the example of his judgment on another country in order to instruct Egypt of their coming judgment. In this case, it's the judgment that God visited upon Assyria. As I say, uh, Lebanon was under the control of Assyria many, many times, but certainly during this time. And so God is essentially telling Egypt, look at Assyria. They once were mighty and powerful, influential, the way that you were. They were beautiful. So Assyria is being represented by this cedar tree in Lebanon, and God says, I cut the tree down. They were beautiful. They were the, the tallest of trees, and now they're gone. And he's using that as an example of what he's going to do to Egypt. So um, I think it's Matthew Henry on this particular section talks about this kind of being a courtroom scene and the importance of legal precedent, which you know if you've ever go to court, people are looking for a legal precedent. So in this case, God takes one sinner, Assyria, and says these are the sins that they committed. In this case, they were mighty, they were, they were big and beautiful and fragrant and all these wonderful things, and they were haughty, they were proud, and all of the things associated with being proud. And the Bible says before pride goes destruction. And so pride is what exalted Satan over God and for which he was cast to earth. Um, Pharaoh is exceedingly proud. We've seen this in chapter 29. And the king of Assyria was exceedingly proud. And the, the Assyrians were a very, very proud people. And God is saying, for this and related sins, I, I judge them. And then God wants Egypt to look at what has happened in their own immediate history and to see the actual judgment of God, God making good on his word against people that have broken their, his law. And so he wants them to learn from looking at this. Um, there's something interesting here. In one sense, each of us are uniquely unique in one sense. In one sense, we are. Um, there's no one exactly like you with, with all of the various aspects of your life, not the same mom, dad, all of the various things that make up who you are. So in one sense, we're completely unique. But in another sense, and as we look at this, we're not unique at all. Either we are found in Christ and we are considered friends of God, children of God, in the wrath of do these Egyptians and Assyrians for their sins fell on, the, on Christ, as I've been talking about, or we are enemies of God. And we may be Assyrian enemies, Moabite enemies, Ammonite enemies, uh, Phoenician enemies, but it doesn't matter. Those other cultural, socioeconomic distinctives do not matter. And so in that way, there, you are, there, there's a homogeneity. Um, either you are apart from Christ or in Christ. You are either 
a child of God, a friend of God in Christ, or you are an enemy. And how God treats his children, you'll be able to see it kind of en masse. He's our loving Heavenly Father. Christ is our brother. We sang about it. The Holy Spirit is our indwelling. He vivifies us. He makes us alive, causes us to be born again, applies all the merits of Jesus. So we're the same in that. But the same is true for the enemy. If you are apart from God in Christ, this is how God will treat you. And so there's no guesswork. So God is telling Egypt, you are an enemy of mine. You hate me. You hate my people. You worship false gods, just like the Assyrians. They're also enemies of mine. Here's what I did to them for their sins, and I did it. And so even though the Assyrians and the Egyptians, different language, different culture, all those things are true, they're utterly the same because they're both enemies of God and they're sinners before a a, a holy God. And so God wants them to stand up, to hear his word, and to see actually from looking at what he's done providentially what's going on. So if we belong to one class, let's say, on the positive end, um, I was thinking of it this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is is typical for the Christian experience. We live a life as God's children by faith, by faith, by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 40, 41, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then we go to live uh, in a glorious heavenly home, a city made without hands because we are the friends of God. So we all enjoy that commonly because we're joined to Jesus. So if we look and say, this is how God treats his children, we can take it to the bank, as it were. That's how God will, choose, will treat us. But the same is true for the enemies. So if you look around, how did God treat Sodom and Gomorrah? How did God treat Egypt? How did God treat these various enemies in the Bible? And then as we can read providence through the Bible to the extent that we can, and we see what he did. He brought judgment. And so God wants the person, the individual, to... Obviously, test yourself. Are you a friend of God in Christ? Or are you still yet an enemy of God apart from Christ? Now, so this is a lesson for the Egyptians. So God is denouncing the Egyptians, but he's using his destruction or judgment of the Assyrians as a practical example for the Egyptians. This is real time. In real time, they could see, yes, Assyria was great, and now they're no more. And it was the Babylonians that put them down. And it's going to be the Babylonians that will put down the Egyptians. So the same sword is going to do it. He's kind of the tyrant of tyrants, um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar himself, I think, will be put down both by the Medes and the Persians, certainly the Persians. So if the Egyptians were wise, and we know that this takes, this takes being regenerate, being born again by the Holy Spirit, if they were wise and they heard chapter 31, remember... The, the, the king of uh, um, Nineveh was the leading city in, in Assyria. And Jonah preaches a similar message. In 40 days, God's going to bring judgment on this place. And this pagan king, under the preaching of that very simple sermon, I'm sure he had other things to say, but that's the essence of it, judgment. And so 40 days implies that there's a possibility of mercy. So he says, everybody, even the animals, sackcloth and ashes. So with, with at least four one particular epoch of Assyrians, they received mercy when they heard a word like this. God will overthrow you. And the king of Nineveh, obviously moved by the Holy Spirit, told everybody, fast, maybe God will relent. Maybe God will have mercy upon us. And then you remember the prophet Jonah is mad at God at the very end. You know why he's mad at God? (laughs) Because he spares the people. Isn't that interesting? 
a child of God, mad at God that he actually had mercy on sinners. Not a very good idea. And you remember that God said to um, Jonah, well, there's actually a boatload of people in this, in this city that can't even count from their left hand to their right. I think they're little bitsies or something like this. You're mad that I'm merciful. But my point with that is, if we were to come to this and we were to find ourselves to be enemies, if we were the Egyptians, the best course of action would be to repent and to ask God in Christ to forgive us. Now, if they don't repent and they hear this word, I will judge you even as I've judged the Assyrians, look at Lebanon, the only thing that remains is judgment and God will be just. This is a Romans chapter 1, 18 to the end of the chapter. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So there's enough from natural revelation. It's not enough about God to convert us, but it's enough about, about God, knowledge of God, to make us culpable before God. So all men know that there's a God and they know that they're not God and that makes them culpable. And then God visits the earth with these various judgments and God's saying, I am God and you are a sinner and you should repent. And so when they don't, no one's going to stand before God on Judgment Day, which this is kind of typical of Judgment Day. No one is going to be on Judgment Day and say, that's not fair. You, you have done wrong. Oh, no. He has sent plenty of messengers. Both the heavens declare the glory of God and the heavens declare that God is God and we are not and we are justly condemned by it. But there's enough in human history to see the arm of, of the Lord uh, move. So these examples are given by God both to warn the, um, the Egyptian that they're going to suffer the fate of the Assyrian, but it's what we read in chapter 33 on that last chapter, which is really my main purpose. It's to comfort the little flock. We are the little flock. Look around. I'm not picking on our numbers. Um, I thank God for the church anyways, no matter what we are. He's always sustained us. But we are the afflicted people of God. And so when God gives these words of denunciation to his enemies, it's to comfort his children. It's to comfort his children. I've been reading various reports. I read a report from a Dutch denomination on people reporting sexual abuse in the church. And it's just, it, it's, it's, very, very, it's very, very upsetting to see that abuse that has occurred, even among professing Christians, and then to hear what pain it causes people. It's just... Um, it's so upsetting. But something that is comforting is even if people, even if those people escape earthly judgment for their absolute horrible abuse of another person, especially kids, um, they're not going to escape this. They're, they're not going to escape this. And that actually is a comfort. That's a Romans chapter 9. God has vessels of wrath and when he manifests his wrath on the, ve- the vessels of wrath, it magnifies the mercy that he has on the vessels of mercy. I know it's not ordinarily the way that we think, but if we were in a real, cru- like, let's say the example of the abuse, that young woman or that young boy that grows up to be a, a woman or a man, and if you were to tell them justice will be done, there is a degree of comfort in that, um, that injustice will not reign. And so this is to comfort God's people that we will not suffer always. This is Luke chapter 18. When God's people cry to him for justice all day long, will he not eventually bring it? He will. So yes, this is a frightening passage to the Assyrians. They're gone. To the Egyptians, they're soon to be gone, at least a portion of them. But it's meant to comfort 
the little flock or the children of, of God in Christ, that God will rectify all injustice and all tyrants, all those who have abused his people will someday be brought to justice. And so God wants us as people with the Holy Spirit, obviously believers, to do two things. One, to be students of the word, even passages like this, even as difficult as they can be. So we should regularly feed on the word of God. And the other thing that we should do, and sometimes I hope I'm not guilty of this, but it's, you can do it. You can want to move to a commune. I, I, I've said many times, if, if, we could, if we could actually do it, do it, I would do it, because it would seem to be an easy fix, but I don't think it would work. But my point with that is this. We should be good students of history. We should look around, and we should be observant. So I am against living in a, in a hole in the wall, just with our face in the Bible. We're not in any danger of that, but not studying what goes on. I don't, I'm not a political pe- preacher. I'm decidedly not a political preacher. I think the only way that you change politics or society or culture is one heart at a time with the gospel. That's my own belief. And that is we increasingly sanctified by living according to the word of God. That's my belief. But notwithstanding, we should understand the times. We should discern what's going on politically, what's going on socially and culturally. And then we should kind of, even, even Jesus says, discern the times. We should discern the times. So when the Jews were looking, saying, the Assyrians are gone. The Babylonians are on the march. And, the, the, and Judah made, a, made a, a pact with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are about to fall. And it's all happening. And I'm not saying in a dispensational kind of way, sitting with your Bible, looking at Russia, going Gog and Magog. But it, it, it's not for nothing. That God wants us to be actively engaged in the time and the place in which he has sent us. So we're not, we, we, it would be sin to be a navel gazer to not discern the times. And I think the way that we discern the times is we live according to the word of God to the best of our ability. So th- this is a, a repeated promise of d- divine judgment against Egypt. Um, God as a father repeats himself. Same reason human fathers do because the children are not listening. But in this case, the enemies of God are not listening. And even this, in uh, what is it? Um, Isaiah 19. Isaiah chapter 19, God will save from Egypt and Assyria. So even, even though this is a judgment passage, if you know your Bible and you know Ezekiel, you, you know the other related passages to this, there's mercy even for the Egyptians. So when God says in chapter 29, judgment is coming, chapter 30, judgment is coming, 31 and 32, if you were an Egyptian, like if you were in Assyria, in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and God says, 40 days, what are you thinking? Well, it's not here yet. 39 days, it's not here yet. Perhaps if I repent. So even the repetition, it's, it's testifying that this is a certainty, that it's going to happen, but the individual Egyptian is, has not been judged yet. That's why, is it Peter's first or second letter? I forget which one. God's slowness in bringing judgment is that some might come to faith in um, God in Christ. So I see even mercy in the, the delay of the judgment, but the judgment will come. We've been given the time indicator in verse 1. We've seen this regularly. This is the fifth oracle. There are, there, there are many oracles, many prophecies within each of the chapters some of the chapters contain two oracles or prophecies apiece. This is the fifth one. 
God the Holy Spirit inspires Ezekiel and the word of the Lord came to. And he'll put a time indicator in such and so the 10th year and such and so the 11th year. And so what do they have? Um, <clears throat> 59 more years to go. Is that it? 59 more years for Israel to be set free. That, that's the time indicator. The time indicator is seen in reference to the Babylonian captivity. God said it's 70 years and it will be 70 years. And so when it says 10th year, 10th year of captivity, 11th year, 11th year of captivity. So in 59 years, Israel is going to come back, Judah particularly, is going to come back to the promised land. And in, in less than that amount of time, God will have brought judgment on Egypt. And you remember from the previous chapters, he says, I'm going to destroy a massive lot of you. And then I'm going to scatter some of you to the nations for 40 years. And then I'm going to bring you back to the land. More mercy. So even judgment passages contain snippets of mercy. But I, I, I want to point this out. 59, they're enslaved. The Jews are, are enslaved right now. In 59 years, they're going to be free. The Egyptians are, are, are free, as it were. In less than 59 years, they're going to be gone. There is something that we say a lot. What a difference, you finish it. What a difference something makes. What a difference a day makes. Um, Human beings reckon time. We count time. We, we, are, we are interesting creatures. Um, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. And then when I get to, I'm going to get my master's, and then I'll go get my PhD, and then I'll go to the church, and then my kids will do this, and then I'm going to do that. And all the stuff we're going to do. And then what happens? We find out that we're not God. And, and God says, here's a new day. And you wake up on the new day, and you look around and go, Wow, I'm not doing that. I'm not that can never happen because that person's not here anymore. And all of this has changed. What's going on? Everything's going to change in the blink of an eye. This is the sovereignty of God, both to save his people and to judge his enemies. And we should live. What's that saying, Coram Deo? I'm preaching to myself. It's so easy to live like a practical atheist, to forget, forget God, and to actually think that we are somehow controlling this business. Um, beloved, you know this. I'm preaching to the choir. If God brings anything that rises above the level of a paper cut into our life, and I'm not even making fun, if you get something of fairly large magnitude, you realize we're not in control of anything. We are, we are not in control. God is going to say, on this day, I'm going to put Pharaoh on the throne. On this day, as I said, I'm going to put him down. I'm going to lift up this one nation. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to put my people in slavery for a time, and then I'm going to free them. Because I am God, and I'm the governor. And what a difference a day makes. And God wants his people to live with that quorum deo before the face of God to live with a conscious awareness. I know Brother Andrew was, what, a Catholic monk or something in the thousands. He said practicing the presence of God or practicing the presence of Christ. That's legitimate if you use it legitimately. That this whole notion, in 59 years, according to my timetable, you'll be free. In 59 years, according to my timetable and less, you will be condemned. Um, it, It testifies to the the sovereignty of God. God says this in Psalm 75, verse 7. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. 
for a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. This is judgment, the dregs. It's well mixed. He pours it out. Surely all the wicked of the earth earth, must drain and drink down its dregs. So for the children of God, the friends of God, I, I referenced it this morning. I think it's Isaiah. My wife and I have been praying it for some personal reasons. Um, God will take you from an ash heap and he'll make beauty out of ashes. He'll take you from the dung hill and he'll put you, put you on a throne. That's for the children. But for the enemies, he'll take you from your throne and he'll put you on the ash heap. And that's kind of what he's teaching us um, here. And he's working all of this out for his own holy purposes. As I've mentioned, this will all bring God glory, both to bring justice on his enemies and it will magnify his justice And then also it magnifies the mercy and the power, the powerful mercy that he has upon his children as vessels of mercy. And as I mentioned, Isaiah 19 is a great chapter to read because in that there will be a remnant of Egyptians and a remnant of Assyrians that would be called the people of God, God's children. It's really fabulous. Um, And even as I mentioned, God has extended mercy even to these Assyrians Again, Lebanon is under the control of Assyria at this time through the preaching of Jonah, as I mentioned. So God uses the symbolic figures to proclaim judgment against Egypt. Some symbols are difficult. If you remember at the early part of the chapters, chapter 1, 2 and following, you had the wheels, multiple wheels with eyes around the wheels and they were spinning and they were moving with the living creatures. I think even that was somewhat easily discernible. God was going to use some kind of war-like mechanism to bring judgment, though it's a little bit tricky, I admit. I think Calvin has some interesting things to say on it. But this symbolism is not tricky. So when he says, okay, Egypt, look over there at Lebanon, indicative of Assyria, they're this massive cedar tree. And I think a cedar can grow, I don't know, what is 100 feet, 120 feet, so 10 to 12-story building. And 10 to 12 stories is not, you know, too big right now. But if you're living in ancient times, something 120 feet tall, I don't know how wide this thing would have been. It would have been massive. Um, That's quite an impressive um, thing. And God is likening the Assyrian Empire to this massive cedar tree that was bigger than all of the other trees. And, And he kind of even says, even Eden was jealous over the beauty of this thing and the majesty and the power. And that's the whole idea. And so God is saying to, to Pharaoh, you're like this. And then even I would say, look at verse one, uh, two. Say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, into his hordes, whom are like you in your great greatness. There, there are a few places in the scripture where God uses sarcasm. I think this is one of them. Who's like you? You're so great. Um, it, it's, sar- it's sarcasm. Now, there's a guy, his name is, a lot of people don't like him, but he was a genius. Um, Robert Louis Dabney, R.L. Dabney, the Southern Presbyterian. And he writes in Eloquence of Preaching, which is his book on preaching. It's a little too, it's a little too hard for my read, uh, but Eloquence of Preaching. He writes against the use of sarcasm in the pulpit because he says the, the possibility of being misunderstood and abusing the people of God is, is just too easy. So he, he says to preachers not to be sarcastic. While it would be good for me not to be sarcastic, and probably I failed in that, 
we can't say the same thing to God. So if God wants to employ sarcasm, um, God is in heaven and he, in the earth they rattle their sabers and he sits in heaven and he mocks. So this is a form of, of divine sarcasm. Uh, Assyria is saying, we are God and you are not. We are stronger. We are the king of kings and you are not. And, and the um, Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, has said the same thing. You remember in chapter 29, Pharaoh says, um, I have created the, the Nile. The Nile belong, belongs to me. I'm God. And God says, no, you didn't create the Nile. You don't own the Nile. You're Leviathan. And even though men can't do anything to you, I'm going to stick a hook in your nose. I'm God. And so God, in a way, says to both Pharaoh, obviously looking at Assyria, put down, who is like you? Oh, who is like you? You're so powerful. You're so majestic. And the whole idea is God is going to say, as he says in Romans 8, and I'm going to put you down because I am God. So the symbolic figure of God's judgment upon Egypt is symbolized by a great tree and then God using ultimately Babylon to chop it down and with a sword, actually. And Israel, excuse me, um, Assyria was destroyed by Babylon and, um, and Egypt will be put down by Babylon. And so as you look through verses 2 through what? Uh, 9. Beautiful, multitude of branches, all the creatures, all the nations living under it. This is natural man. Um, when I was away the other day, they had an ice cream joint that I was going to go to. But of course they were closed, which was divine providence because I don't need any more ice cream. But it was called Paradise Found. And of course he's to play on Milton's Paradise Lost. Pa- ice cream, Paradise Found. But it is to me, who's a sugaraholic in in but when you look at this idea of paradise found this is a picture of natural man natural man depicted by the assyrians and by the uh, by the the egyptians and i would say sad to say by unconverted americans what men value is power pomp wealth all of these things and then ultimately what he produces in the possessor of those things is what is manifested by the king of Assyria and the king of Egypt is haughtiness, is pride. So here is Pharaoh saying, I, I, I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I have all of these confederate con- countries with me, we just whip everybody's tail, and we're strong militarily, we're, we're, we're financially filthy rich, and what that pr- produces in the heart of a natural man is a proud person. And, and it's very interesting, um, I maintain what I mentioned this morning. Christians grow more Christ-like through affliction. We don't have to sign up for that. Don't worry about it. That, that's, it's called the school of Christ. If you're a believer, you're in it. And I, 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 God is a loving God. He gives us so much, so many of our, much of our life. He, he's, he's exceedingly gentle to us. But he does use hard times. In, in, in the book of, of uh, Revelation, chapter 2, it's the church. I think the only church that doesn't get a rebuke is the church of uh, Smyrna. And he says, the, the one who is the first and the last, the one who is dead and has come to life. He says, I know your works. And he says, I know your tribulation. And I know your poverty, but you are rich. It's, it, it's usually the opposite. For the worldling, um, they think all of these things are their true riches. And it makes them more spiritually. But for the true child of God, even though we don't like the other, our flesh recoils at it, the other things make us more Christ-like, more serviceable. 
I'm, I'm almost sad to say that, but I, I do know it's true. It's when we're weak that we find out that Christ is strong. And, it's the, and man, this is natural man. And so pride is a form of self-worship. That was the problem with the Assyrians. That's the problem with the Egyptians. And um, you remember, I'm going to read from Ezekiel 36. The king of the Assyrians, and this is the example that God is using against the Egyptians, he writes a letter to the people of Judah. I'm going to read from Isaiah 36, uh, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. The king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, I think he's one of the, the, um, the uh, leaders, uh, one of his council, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was on the housetop. Shibna, the scribe, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this? This is what the king of Assyria is saying to the people of God. What is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Words. Now, on whom do you reply that you have rebelled against me? The king of Assyria says to the Jews, Who are you relying on that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even in Egypt, which is going to fail them, on which if a man leans, it'll go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, and listen to this, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and whose altar Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? And then this fellow, Rabshakeh, starts speaking in Hebrew. And the people say, don't speak to us in Hebrew because the people will understand. He said, oh, no. You're going to drink your own urine. You're going to eat your own feces. You're going to be killed or you're going way off into captivity. Jehovah, Yahweh will not save you. And God puts them down. And that's Egypt. This is natural man. Natural man says, I'm God. And God is not God. And so God uses the Babylonians, one tyrant, to put down the Assyrians. And now he's warning this other tyrant who's acting exactly like. Um, When we were away the other day, um, our waitress, we were at a restaurant and she had an accent. And I said, are you Italian? She says, I'm Bosnian. We're chatting back and forth and our son speaks Serbian. And so she got a kick out of that. And she said, well, my country was different under my folks and she was younger than our kids. And so I remember Bosnia was not Bosnia and Serbia was not Serbia. It was Yugoslavia. And when you look around at all of these various nations, even as we said earlier, they could be so different. Really natural man is the same. Power, pomp, pride, I am God, God is not God, they've bought the lie, I will crush God, I will crush the people of God, and God says to one tyrant after another, you're not God. And then he says to them, you're just a man, and you're going to die like a man. And then I would argue he even hints at, which is what this hints at, you're going to go to the place of the uncircumcised, you're going to go to Sheol. And I understand sometimes Sheol is used as just a reference to the grave, But I would argue this is further. It's a reference even to eternal judgment, which is what will happen. But I want to leave us with this. When God says, ultimately, all of these enemies of God, even though they think that they're God, they will die just like men. As I mentioned at the very beginning, this is for the comfort of God's people. Um, There are a number of places where God 
takes a passage like this, Psalm 1 and 2, I would argue, somewhat like that, and he says to the people of God who are suffering at the hands of enemies, he says, look around. Look around at your enemies. In a little while, they're not going to be there anymore. And you're going to be at rest. And I I, want to end with that because I think it would be helpful. I'll read a couple of passages and then quit that reference that idea. Where Where are the Assyrians? They were put down by the Babylonians. Where, where, are, where are the Egyptians? They were put down by the Babylonians. Where are the Babylonians? They were put down by the Persians. Where are the Persians? They were put down by the Greeks. Where are the Greeks? They were put down by the Romans. Where is the church of Christ? It always, There's always a church of God upon the earth to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will, on the last day, be standing because there is a God of justice and he has vessels of wrath that he manifests justice on. But then he preserves the vessels of mercy his children. Psalm 37. You'll like this, especially if you're going through hard times. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who carries out his wicked schemes, cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leans only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.